Hey, would you pray with me? God, we confess that um, even though you hold the whole world in your hands, we act like it's actually ours to hold. And so we're often anxious and distressed and disappointed and frustrated. God, I just pray that you would give us a minute to be refreshed from that. That tonight as we come into your presence, that you would um, give us a fresh vision of who you are and who you're inviting us to be. Thanks for Regen. Thanks for this church. Thanks for these people, uh, for their stories and for what you're doing in their lives. Um, feel honored to be a part of it and feel honored to know you in this moment, Father. So be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Awesome. You can be seated. Um, hey, my name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here at Regen, and I'm totally excited to have you with us. Um, we are finishing a sermon series tonight and starting a new one next week, which I'm totally excited about, so stay tuned. Uh, but before we dive into that, I just wanted to take a few minutes and just take care of some business uh, and some of the stuff that's going on in the life of our church. At Regen, we're super, super passionate about having guests, and so if you're a guest with us tonight, we're so happy to have you. On your way out, please don't forget to grab a mug, which is our gift for just being here. Um, you're loved, and we want to help you wake up in the morning, and so that's what you can do with that, uh, and we appreciate it. Um, also, uh, at Regen, we're really, really passionate about being generous. We're really, really passionate about being, serving our community in tangible ways. And so typically, we have a one project a month. We do one thing, we say, every month that helps people in our community know Jesus. And so the one thing that we're doing this month is something called Operation Christmas Child. And very few of our one things are so globally focused, but this is the one that we make sure is globally focused every year, that a way that we can point people to Jesus. And so if you don't know what Operation Christmas Child is, or if you do and want a reminder, take a look um, at this video. So every Christmas time, about 44, 45 million of these boxes go around the globe, and inside are things like socks and school supplies and some toys and kids in Africa and the Middle East and in Asia and in Europe and, every, and in South America, all over the world, get one, and then through that, they're given a chance to know Jesus. And so if you um, are interested in packing a shoebox, we have pre-made ones. If you go to Operation Christmas Child's website, it'll tell you what to pack, what not to pack, how to do all of that. Um, and so take one of these with you and bring them back. Your program says December 22nd, which will be unfortunately a little too late. So actually, please bring it back November 22nd and we'll get it to you. Um, tonight we're in uh, sermon number 11 of an 11-week series in the book of Ephesians. Um, series being a cute word for just packaging a theme of text together for us to kind of learn through and wrestle through. And so we've been talking about what it means to be a living church. And tonight we're going to talk about what it means to be victorious. I want to read just the text that we'll have before us tonight and pray one more time. I know we've already prayed before, but just in a particular way for our time in the Word. So here are these words. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, chapter 13, uh, Ephesians 6, verses 13 through 17. He says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness for shoes, Put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
Let's pray together one more time. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see things that are true about ourselves and about this journey that you're inviting us to in a fresh way. I pray that uh, as we wrestle through this vital text, that you would give us a fresh willingness to follow you where you lead us. Work among us now, we pray, in the name of the one who is with us always and whose very word we are under tonight. His name is Jesus. Amen. Every once in a while, there's this post that goes around Facebook that says something like, everyone you know is fighting a battle that you know nothing about, so be kind. And I, I appreciate the sentiment. I appreciate the idea that every person you meet is under the weight of some sort of anxiety or depression or frustration or disappointment that would, if we really knew about it, lead us to treat them in a different way. And so let's be kind to one another. Everyone, it says, is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. But as we turn to Ephesians 6, Paul points us to a battle that is far more real and frankly far more cosmic than what this little Facebook post has to say. When Paul turns to Ephesians 6, the close of this letter on what it means to be a living, loving church, Paul turns to the subject of what Christians call spiritual warfare, quote-unquote, the reality that Paul says that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers and rulers and authorities in a realm that, while we, again, we cannot see it, is equally real. Paul echoes in this text something Peter says in 1 Peter 5, which is that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Last week, if you were here, we unpacked the realities of what this battle means, that all of us at any given moment are opposed by an enemy who is real, opposed by an enemy who, Jesus says, only desires to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet, in the tremendous irony of the gospel and the way that Jesus has victory, uh, Colossians 2, 13 to 15, which is on the screen, says, you were dead in your sins because of your sinful nature, was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, Paul writes, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by the victory over them in, on the cross. The gospel of Jesus tells us that we, the living church, are victorious over the forces of the devil, over the forces of darkness, over these things that are real and true, and frankly, that on some level ought to be feared. The gospel of Jesus tells, that even, tells us that even though Satan makes it his goal to deceive us, makes it his goal to shame us, makes it his goal, his goal to tempt us to sin, we have victory over it because Christ has disarmed the enemy and his forces in the gospel. Paul says that we are victorious. This is often a term that I, I don't love too much, this idea that I am victorious in Christ because I think it often gets co-opted by our American dreamism and says that because I'm victorious, I can have a new car and I'm going to have a lot of money and all of these things. And yet, the picture painted in the scriptures for what victory is and isn't is so different. And so Paul, in his words in Ephesians 6, tells us that victory over the enemy is found, as he says in verse 13, by putting on every piece of God's armor so that we will be able to resist the enemy. The funny thing about resisting is that it means that we stand still. 
The summary teaching of scripture on things, on matters of spiritual warfare is that we do not move, that we don't go anywhere, that we resist, so that, so that when we are tempted, we do not run away, that when we face the enemy, we do not cower back in fear, but neither do we lean forward out of curiosity, neither do we get closer just to take a look. The way that we have victory, this is a little mind-blowing, is not by charging into battle. The way that we have victory isn't running away and letting Jesus, our big brother on the block, beat the snot out of the other guy. The way that we have victory, Paul says, is by standing still. And as we stand still, Paul instructs us to equip every piece of God's armor. I've been in the church a lot, and so I've heard this text preached to me a lot. And the so what of this text, and Almost every sermon I've heard is, so go home tomorrow and put on God's armor. Church, regeneration, go home tomorrow and put on God's armor. I've always struggled with this because it's invisible. Uh, And I don't have God's own armor in the top drawer of my dresser. Um, I can't buy it on Amazon or wait. Maybe I can. It can be yours for $34.99 plus shipping. What annoys me is this idea of how do I put on God's armor? I mean, do I pray? Do you like I wake up in the morning and mentally picture myself putting on these things? I think those questions, that kind of so what distracts us from what Paul is trying to get at. Because we put on the armor of God every time we live out the teachings that Paul has addressed in these chapters. Every time that we live into the vision that Paul makes clear for us in Ephesians chapter 6, we're putting on the armor. Because you see, Paul is wrapping up the letter which five minutes into my sermon, some of you may wish I was already doing. But Paul is wrapping up the letter. And so he wants to make sure that we're pulling all of these themes that have come into the letter all the way back together into one nice package. We put on the armor when we do what Paul says to do in this letter. We put on the armor when we do what God says to do in this letter. Here's what I mean. Paul says to put on the belt of truth. There you can see a picture of what Paul is saying, a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the shoes of peace. Sometimes when we think of the armor of God, we think of like a knight from the medieval era. But really when Paul is writing this, he's writing during the height of the Roman Empire, he's thinking of Roman centurions. And so Paul says, put on the belt of truth, which really referred to that whole thing that kind of covered all of their thighs. And when you hear the word truth, it's actually a word that Paul has used over and over again in Ephesians. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13 that you Gentiles have also heard the truth, that good news, that God saves you, and when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. We put on the belt of truth every time that we live into the reality that God has identified me as his own, that God has identified you as his own. The belt of truth protects us from the enemy's attempts at deceit and temptation and accusation because every time he comes to us and tells us how bad we are, every time he tells us why it would be more expedient or enjoyable to sin, we're reminded that no, that in truth I am adopted, that I am loved, that I am chosen, that in every way in Christ, that Christ is praised, I am praised, that in every way he is treasured, I am treasured, in every way that he is loved, I am loved. When I, am, I, when I put on the belt of truth, I am reminded of our very first sermon out of the gate, that I have a new identity. Paul says to put on the breastplate of righteousness, this piece of armor that would really cover the majority of their chest. 
Righteousness here refers to an ethical quality, the way that you and I behave. And every time that we act out Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 verse 1, be therefore imitators of God as dearly beloved children, when we act righteously as our Father is righteous, what is there for the enemy to do to us? If I'm living fully into the vision that Jesus has for me, there's no temptation that is really going to seem that desirable. And even if it is, I know how to say no. There's nothing that he can accuse me for, no way that he can lie to me. When I'm being an imitator of God, I'm shielded in that way from the enemy's lies. Paul says to put on shoes of peace. I call them the shoes of the gospel's readiness. And in Ephesians chapter 3, you'll remember, Paul talks all about the fact that we, as a living church, are missionaries, that it all falls to us, not just to special people in the community, but to all of us to help people know about Jesus. Paul says, for by God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. And all the time, here's how you lace up those shoes. It's that when you wake up every day and spend every moment in readiness, as Peter says, to give reason for the hope that is within you, to point to Jesus which is why on the back of your program, since we preached that message, those three simple prayers have been on the back there every week to pray throughout the day that, Lord, help me see people the way you see people. Break my heart for what breaks your heart. Help me point someone to Jesus today. When we do that, the shoes are on because we're always ready. That's what I love about what Paul does in, in Ephesians 6 and these last verses. If you caught it, he says, he says that we should put on the shoes of peace from the good news so that we'll be fully prepared. And then Paul says to put on the helmet of salvation. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2 that salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done, but it's a gift. You know, it's funny, I think that's important to think about because I think the number one way that the enemy lies to us, the number one way the enemy tempts us, the number one way the enemy shames us is by telling us that we have to work for God's approval. The number one way that the enemy gets to us is let us, to let us know that if we want to be accepted by God, we've got to do something. And yet the way of Jesus tells us that I don't work in order to be accepted, I'm accepted and so I work. When we put on the helmet of salvation, if you think of a helmet, that's what you see through. And when we think about how we're saved, given a new identity, that we are gifted, that we are fathered, that we are chosen and loved, it stops us from boasting about what we've done or what we've not done. It stops us from feeling guilty for not working hard enough to earn it. You notice I left a couple out. I left out the sword and the shield, and I'll get there in a second. But one of the questions that I was wondering about this is, where does the armor come from? I uh, don't like sports. I never, ever have. Um, I have the ESPN app on my phone, which I put on about this time last year, simply so that when things of sports-like nature come up in conversation, I can say something intelligent. So yes, I study up on these things. I know that Ohio State had a bye last night, and I actually only know that because someone told me to make sure I knew if it came up in conversation. Um, I don't like to fish. I don't like to hunt. I don't really have a lot of hobbies. Uh, the thing that I really enjoy is studying this book. I like learning things. I like using my mind. And in studying for this sermon, I learned what has to be probably the coolest thing I've learned about the Bible in at least five years. And uh, this is it. It's this idea of when Paul is talking about armor, yeah, he's summing up the letter. So he's bringing in categories that he brought in earlier in the letter, categories about salvation and righteousness and truth and the gospel. And yet what Paul is also doing is he's just quoting the Bible. Because all of the pieces of God's armor in Ephesians chapter 6 
are what Yahweh, what the Lord, wears in the book of Isaiah. So take a look at this first slide. Uh, when it comes to the belt of truth, Isaiah 11:5. actually this is referring to the Messiah, to Jesus. It says, he will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. About the breastplate and the helmet, this is referring to Yahweh going to battle. It says, he put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. When it comes to the sword of the spirit, which we'll get to in a minute, um, the text says uh, on this next one here, Dylan, he made my words as judgment as sharp as a sword. And as far as the shoes, a great text in Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. When we say that we have victory in Jesus, it becomes this category that seems a little disconnected, but here's why we have victory in Jesus. We have victory in Jesus because we've been knighted. We have victory in Jesus because we've been given God's own armor. We have victory in Jesus because God takes off his very own battle armor and hands it to us. So victory means that I live it every time I live the victory, every time I put on the armor, and I put on the armor every day that I simply live into the vision that Jesus has for me. Victorious living isn't this thing that's only for the special spiritual. Victorious living isn't this thing that means that you're going to feel good all the time or have a nice car or have a whole heck of a lot of money. Here's what victorious living is. Victorious living is simply living into the vision that Jesus has for you. Victorious living is being knighted by the king. This is mind-blowing to me. And so, I skipped these kind of offensive weapons, this shield of faith and this sword of the spirit, and I'll talk about what I would call a wartime walkie-talkie as well. Remember last week we talked about how the enemy has three pieces of arsenal. If, by the way, you want to listen to last week's sermon, it'll be online sometime in the next week um, on SoundCloud. We talked about how the enemy has three tools. He deceives us, he tempts us, and he accuses us. And I was talking with somebody this week, I was talking with Zach this week, and he basically pointed it out. And so actually he was supposed to preach this weekend and chickened out at the last second. But he said that the thing is that when we're tempted to sin and we sin, we feel shameful about it and then we lie. I mean, that's how it works. And that's when we kind of get trapped on this hamster wheel of the enemy's torture almost. But yet... Coming into this, God gives us his own armor so that we can fight against that. And the first thing that he gives us is the sword of the spirit. Paul says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This book is tremendously important in spiritual warfare because it is what is true. It is what is right. It is what is, Hebrews says, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days and has an encounter with Satan himself who tempts him three different ways. And in each of those three times, Jesus quotes scripture. Jesus just looks the devil square in the face and quotes the Bible at him. I mean, he was God. He could have written a whole brand new book, and it could be the 67th book in our New Testament, The Temptations of Jesus. And he could have said exactly all these things that would have, that logical arguments that would bat the enemy away, but he didn't. He just said, for man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. We ought to take heed of that, that when tempted, when accused, when lied to, we have to run to this book. And the truth of the matter is, 
either this book will keep us from sin, this is a Howard Hendricks line, either this book will keep us from sin or sin will keep us from this book, and that's the danger, because the more we give into temptation and shame and deceit, the more and more we are disarmed. And what good is a soldier on the battlefield without his sword? He's just in the way. Paul says that we ought to take up the shield of faith. He says, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Remember in that picture, the shield of faith, it's actually what they would call a tower shield. It was something that a Roman centurion could hold up, but it would effectively cover his whole body. And it was made with a material such that when a fire, an air, a flaming arrow hit the shield, it would douse it. It was something about the material that would douse the arrow. And so Paul some, people, some commentators say, since Paul is writing this from prison, he might be looking out his window at a centurion outside guarding the prison. He says, in addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. What stops the fiery arrows of the devil is that every time that we reach for God's promises in faith, when we choose again to trust what the Lord has said to us and about us. And Satan wants nothing more than for you to believe about yourself that you're not chosen, that you are worthless, that you're not loved, that you are rejected. He wants you to know that you're not accepted, but that you've been discarded. And yet, when we take up the shield of faith and lay hold of those things and say, no, this is what's true about me, it extinguishes the arrows. Lastly, we pray. I think it's super interesting that Paul, if you look at 6.18, kind of ends this piece where he says, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert. Be persistent in your prayers for believers everywhere. I think we pray. We pray prayers that are too small. And so we pray for things like safety and we pray for things like healing and we pray for things like protection. And there's nothing wrong with praying that way, but these are things that God promises us. Jesus says that worrying doesn't add an hour to our life. Jesus says that all the hairs on our head are numbered. Jesus says that God pays attention when one sparrow falls to the ground. And if he does that, how much more is he looking after you? I mean, if God is aware when a sparrow falls to the ground, if God knows how many hairs are on my head, I don't really need to worry about traveling safely because either I'm going to be safe or not. We pray small prayers. We don't pray big prayers about what's going on in our community. I mean, when was the last time there was a prayer meeting in Trumbull County about the, I don't know, 40-some, 50-some people in this year alone that have died to heroin overdose? I mean, we, we don't pray big prayers because we don't think that prayer is a war, an act of wartime communication. That's what Paul is saying, that prayer is wartime communication. It's us getting on the walkie-talkie to the chief strategist in the war. It's getting on the walkie-talkie back to HQ. It's getting on the phone back to the general and asking him what's next. But we pray small prayers. Soldiers don't call the general and say, how do I remain safe? Soldiers call the general and say, how do I win? Soldiers don't call the general and say, how do I make this easy? Soldiers say, what's the greatest risk I could take for the greatest rewards that we can achieve victory in the most dramatic way? We pray too small. What we fail to believe is that by the Spirit's power, there is this kind of electrical current running all over the world, and prayer is how we plug into it. Prayer was the original 4G. And yet we pray small things. Paul says it's wartime communication. He says, stay alert. You know, when you're going to stand in a battle, when you're going to be firm, 
you better be alert. And do you notice that Paul tells us not to pray for ourselves? Be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere, which I guess we count. But the theory of the New Testament is that no church prays for itself because we're praying for another church, so we're just going to trust another church is praying for us. This sermon's about victory in Jesus and how in the gospel we share in Christ's victory over all things. Here's what I want you to know. Victory in Jesus does not mean we're always happy. Victory in Jesus does not mean we're always tremendously provided for. Victory in Jesus does not mean comforted. Victory in Jesus does not mean that our preferences rule the day. Victory in Jesus means that the one who has conquered sin and death and the devil shares that victory with us. That we get to be in the parade with him. The gospel says that because of the victory of Jesus, when we are at our worst, we are actually at our best. Because at that moment, we are given the, he's given the most room to work. And so when we have failed, when we are beat down, when we are discouraged, when we are addicted, when we are distracted, when we are hurt, when we are tired, we're actually closer to the victory than we thought we were. There's a verse in Exodus that I think is just tremendous. It says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's why the command is to be still. That's why the command is to stand firm because the Lord will fight for us. Our participation in the battle, our contribution to the victory is not going nowhere. Not leaning in, not leaning back standing still because the Lord will fight for you. And so my question for you tonight is where do you need to be still? Where do you need to pump the brakes? Where do you need to stop? Where do you need to be still? What battle, maybe put another way, what battle are you fighting that is not yours to fight? What front are you pursuing victory on that's not your front to choose? Where do you need to be still? It's my suspicion that we stop being still when we decide that the Lord is no longer with us. And so the reason that we celebrate communion every week at Regen is not because we have some sort of religious commitment to a ritual, but because we know that we need reminded that Christ is with us and that at this table, he promises to make his presence known to us. We celebrate communion every week because I need to know in today, on November 1st, in ways that I didn't need to know on October 25th, that he's with me. And so we come to this table and we take a piece of bread and we dip it in a cup of grape juice. And yet in that, Christ makes his presence known to us. He walks with us. And he strengthens us. Makes us known. Makes us know that we can be still because he's with us. And so the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song. And uh, as they do, whenever you're ready, you can respond to God. And we typically offer two ways for you to do that. And, And the one is, You just come, you take a piece of bread, you dip it in the cup. The $20 word for this being intinction, so you can say you learned something tonight. But then also, if you happen to be giving tonight, um, a lot of what we do at Regen, uh, 
ministry requires money. It's the most annoying fact of my life. And so if your heart's aligning with God's heart for this community, you can use the offering envelope inside of your program and drop it in that basket. But first, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we don't always remember that you're with us and that it's out of that forgetfulness that we, that we choose to fight battles that you're asking us not to fight. And when we step into battles that we're not called to fight, we lose. And then in the irony of that, we blame you for the losing. And so, Father, we're sorry. We pray, God, that you would uh, refresh our strength and our resolve to stand still. That in the eating of this bread and the, and the drinking of this cup, after a fashion, you would strengthen us to be still. Pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that they might become to us the body and blood of Christ, that we might become the living, loving church redeemed by his blood. We pray this in the name of the one who's with us always. His name is Jesus. Amen. The table is open. Taste and see that the Lord is good.
things you're standing still this week, my prayer is that you would find the one who fights for you. That uh, in your standing still and your stopping, that you would find one who goes before you and walks with you, who is your defense and your righteousness. Um, may you wear this week the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. May your feet be shod with the shoes of the gospel of peace. May your head wear be crowned with the helmet of salvation. May you take up a sword and a shield. May you do war by finding the one who fights with you and for you. Your love, please hang around. We've got some awesome food out in the lobby for you. Um, we'll see you next week.